What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Academics Podcast. I'm your host, Justin D. Barnett, and today's guest is Ben Grinsman. He is a cultural strategy director at Sparks and Honey. If you follow me on social media or, or on LinkedIn and his name sounds familiar, it's because you've heard me and him in discussion before. I was actually a guest on a panel discussion that he moderated not too long ago. Within this convo, we pick up right where we left off. Ben dives into his background, his current role and resume, as well as offering up some great advice to students and others looking to follow a similar career path as his. As for Sparks and Honey, they're a cultural intelligence consultancy helping organizations understand explosive and immediate cultural shifts, as well as cultural tastes that develop over time. In short, they quantify culture. But enough of me, let's get into this conversation. Enjoy. Ben, thank you for taking the time to chat. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's been a couple months since we last spoke. So, um, you know, I'm excited to get this one-on-one interview with you. I know last time we actually met and did the panel, you were you were moderating. So it's interesting to have you on the other side of this. Yeah. Oh, I love this reversal of roles. I'm, I'm very mature for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, can, can we start by, uh, can you just give the listeners a brief self-introduction? Yeah, sure. Uh, My name is Ben Grinspan. I am a director of cultural strategy at Sparks and Honey, which is a uh, tech-led cultural consultancy uh, in New York. I'm uh, based in Brooklyn, originally from Philly. I'm like a big foodie and politics geek, which sometimes comes in handy in my uh, daily life, which is uh, working with clients to develop cultural strategy and also leading the daily culture briefing, which is sort of our daily, our, our, our web show at Sparks and Honey that uh, unpacks trends and changes in human behavior. Okay, okay. Um, you mentioned that you are a cultural strategy director, so let's dig in a little bit into that. Um, you know, what exactly is a cultural strategy director? Yeah, so um, Sparks and Honey has uh, multiple different sort of <laughs> levels within the organization. I'm part of the strategy department. Um, and really a cultural strategist, uh, you know, wears almost every hat within the, the, the strategy department. It's one thing that I love about my job is that we are sometimes strategy departments in advertising are sort of ancillary or adjunct or whatever. Uh, we are sort of the heart of the organization. And so we're tasked with um, uh, working, you know, on, on client work, not only developing the research and thinking about the storytelling and the narrative, but also thinking about things like how do we do the research properly? How do we make sure that we're not, you know, overburning uh, on our on our on our hours? Um, and ultimately, it's also about developing relationships with clients. So it's not just trying to make sure that you know the specific scope of work is met, that we are uh, telling them uh, what they want to hear in this particular project. But also, it's about kind of spotting opportunities to either go a little bit further or to make sure that if we're having ongoing conversations with them, right? Sparks and Honey has some clients that we've had for the entire 10 years that we've been a company um, to, to make sure as a cultural strategy director that the work you're doing executes on the little things, but also keeps the big things, the, the, the client development, the, uh, the relationship development uh, in mind as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's darn near sort of everything uh, involved in a single client ask and then some. Okay. We're actually come. I'll circle back uh, to your current role in, in a second. But before we go on to that, can we, can we talk a little bit about Sparks and Honey? And can you kind of explain what the agency is and, and like exactly what their sweet spot is? I know earlier you just mentioned you're a tech-led cultural consultancy. Like, that's right. What, yeah. what, what, yeah. what, exactly, what exactly does that mean? What does the cultural consultancy mean is something that's, <laughs> I think we get a lot at Sparks and Honey, but ultimately it's a 
Uh, it's a really cool model. So about 10 years ago, as I said, we were started in Omnicom, the giant media holding company, as sort of like an in-house startup to quantify culture, right? Um, one thing, you know, culture is obviously incredibly important to what we do uh, in, in as advertisers, as marketers. It, it informs all of the decisions that we make, right? And sometimes advertising makes culture, right? And sometimes it responds to it. But one of the things that I think was missing in the market for a very long time was this sense that um, you could uh, apply some of the same principles that you'd apply to, say, business strategy or management consulting uh, to this same idea of, of, of making um, good decisions based on culture. So what does that mean for Sparks and Honey? Well, we work with Fortune 500 companies, uh, some governments, some nonprofits, uh, and, and some uh, individuals to basically help them harness the cultural change that's going on around them, right? These are enormous organizations. Some of them are, have, you know, thousands of employees and uh, make billions of, of dollars and, and pop culture is changing faster than they necessarily have time to keep up with it. And oftentimes they'll spot something in the market that intrigues them or more likely even freaks them out a little bit. Um, and we're there to help these really, really smart people who know a ton about the vertical that they're in to kind of understand what's going on. Like we say at Sparks and Honey in the horizontal, how does our new wellness culture, how does the Black Lives Matter movement, how does, um, you know, uh, metaverse and digitization and digital spaces, how does that impact the way in which people think about their social media or think about their, their products or, or even think about some of their business strategy? So what we do is we have this system that uses a proprietary software and then also our own sort of sociological methodology, I'm throwing a lot of big words here, um, to help these companies figure out what this change in, in, in broader culture means and how they can apply it either to their advertising, to their branding, uh, or to their business strategy. And so every day is kind of different for us. Like I'm right now I'm, I'm working on a project about, you know, the future of vision, but I also talk about things like, um, you know, trust in government, but also the rise of hard seltzers. And so our clients are, you know, in insurance and food and beauty and travel and government. Um, and what's cool about the methodology and what makes Sparks and Honey so special is that we can apply this methodology to kind of any major cultural question, any major business concern, and find really great ways for companies to act a little smarter and ultimately be more culturally relevant in what they do. Yeah. And what are some notable clients that you've worked with or that the agency um, works with? Oh, yeah. So they don't love when I name clients directly, but I will say that I have had some really cool clients. I, um, you know, I worked with some major TV studios. Uh, I did a project for a European airline that was all about whether or not uh, air travel makes you a more empathetic person. I think we proved pretty conclusively that it does. Um, like I said, I kind of love the, I'm, I'm often in the alcohol vertical, which is really interesting, especially given not only a thing like the rise of hard seltzers, but uh, earlier this year, I just did a huge report about the rise of non-alcoholic beer, right? Which is a big thing that's going on right now. Uh, and I think it's a lot, you know, it's the kind of thing that a company looks at and goes, wait, how is this a threat to us? How do we make money off of this? How do we respond to this? So I've worked in a ton of different verticals. I've gotten to work for uh, a governor. I got to present last year to uh, a literal princess. That was pretty cool. So we're, we've, got a, we've got a lot of different companies under our belt. Wow. Sounds amazing. So I know you're based in New York City. Are there mm -hmm. other um, offices around the country or around the world? So uh, like most people in the pandemic, we've had a couple people who sort of said adios to, to New York. So when we are based in New York, we have... Uh, 
I have coworkers in Austin, some in you know, LA, San Francisco. Uh, we have one who just uh, picked up and moved uh, to France, which is pretty cool. We have one who's doing van life. I, I have no idea where he is at any given time. <laughs> um, but ultimately, that's what kind of makes us good, right? It's a, it's a company that really values like both identity diversity and diversity of experience. So sometimes yeah. they love when someone declares, I got to move to Georgia, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's talk about, um, you mentioned, again, you mentioned the agency as a consultancy. Like what, what is the difference between a consultancy and like a traditional full service ad agency? Yeah, so that's a really good question. We were started, I mean, we are partnered with the BBDOs and the DDBs of the world, which are those, you know, really big, really prestigious uh, advertising agencies. But we're tasked with something that's a little different. We um, function more like uh, an adjunct uh, insights department in many ways. Of course, also like a marketing department and a strategy department and, you know, sometimes a C-suite as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not producing creative necessarily. We're way upstream from that. Um, we are thinking about big changes that are happening in a, comp- in a, in a client's uh, you know, sort of wheelhouse. I spent, um, spent about a year working, uh, for an insurance company that makes almost all of its money off of people over 65, right? And so we spent a lot of time thinking about what does it mean to be 65 today? How is it different to be, you know, to hit that Medicare age when you're a baby boomer, um, who ha- may have totally different concerns than, uh, their parents did or even people 20 years older than them. So we start at the end there and we often then feed those insights either directly to the client who then gives it to their agency of record. Um, or sometimes it's within the Omnicom network itself and we'll work with those advertising partners. And, you know, a year later, I see an advertisement uh, from that insurance company and I think, yeah, I can, I can see, I can see the deck a little bit in, in that messaging right there. So we're way, way up. At the, at the top of the funnel when it comes to the uh, production of, of advertising. Okay, got it. So prior, prior to your current role as a, the cultural strategy director, I know you've kind of moved up in position uh, throughout the year. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about that. Um, I know you've held like numerous positions. So yeah. w- w- where did your career journey start? Um, and can you kind of walk us through how you ended up exactly where you are? Yeah. So I started in digital marketing. I should preface all of this by saying I graduated in 2009 into like the great recession. Mm. So uh, I totally understand where young people are, especially people who graduated, you know, in 2020 and 2021. I totally get it. Um, I, I happened into digital marketing. I uh, was hired to be an uh, assistant at this uh, really well-respected landscape architecture firm in Philadelphia. I love architecture. I love design. And they sort of, after two weeks, were like, hey, you're a millennial. Can you write? Can you run our social media? So I started in that and, you know, helped run their blog and their, and their social media. And I would pay attention to the analytics. And um, it was cool because it was such a cool subject. And they worked with, like, you know, the Frank Gehrys of the world. They worked with, like, truly the most famous architects around. Um, I eventually left after two years there. I went to go do digital marketing for a real estate company, which had this really unique value set. It's a you know, real estate's a perfectly great industry, but it's sort of rare to see ones who really care deeply about things like the environment and, uh, you know, uh, urban development. Um, and so I helped work with them to basically get better at expressing uh, what they care about and differentiating themselves via, you know, their digital marketing and their email marketing and their social media presence. But eventually I, you know, you, <laughs> eventually I got kind of sick of writing blog posts. I'm not going to lie. Some people want to do that forever. That was not my thing. I uh, recognized that I, there were some skills I needed to work on. And so I went to Columbia to go get my master's at the School of Professional Studies and get a master's in um, strategic communications. And it was only there that I 
A, learned that you could just be a strategist, <laughs> that that was a real job that you could do. Um, and B, that the stuff that I loved the most about what I was doing in, in content creation was that sort of content strategy, was looking and seeing what did people care the most about in the work that I was doing and adjusting my content to match that. And frankly, that's a lot of what I do today. So, um, you know, if you can go get a master's, it was, uh, it's, it's an amazing place to kind of explore what you're, what you're really interested in. Um, and then I uh, spent some time in the ad tech world, did some consulting for, again, some real estate and uh, design uh, groups and uh, ended up at Sparks and Honey through, uh, uh, through a, 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 a professor of mine at Columbia. Um, and the rest is sort of history. I started there in February of 2017 and uh, have been there ever since. Yeah, yeah. So I know initially before you before you went and got your master's, you you got your bachelor's in political science. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about that, um, just from experience and from talking to a lot of students. A lot of people come into college with their with a goal on where they want to go in their career, and for whatever reason, they end up you know pivoting and doing something else. So like at what totally. point? You know, at what point, like, what did you initially want to do with that political science degree? I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out I also had a French degree, which was even more. Um, I mean, I still I, I still speak some French. Um, I still watch French Netflix sometimes. But no, I, um, you know, I've always been like super interested in politics. It's always been a thing I care about. If you watch the Daily Culture Briefing, I'm often bringing things back to that sort of political communications. But, you know, I think I realized pretty quickly after spending some time like in college working in, in politics itself that I really care about policy and I really care about, you know, the sort of the, the sport of it, but I don't want to be a politician and I don't want to run campaigns and uh, I don't have the single-mindedness to be the sort of policy person. So what I did, what I do think I, get, I got out of my political science degree is the fact that Ultimately, there is a huge aspect of sociology to political science. I mean, mm-hmm. your listeners, I'm sure, know that. Um, and that was the kind of thing that I think I sort of gravitated to. Like, the, I, I was, you know, the best paper I wrote in college, right? The one that I think I was the most proud of was this paper about how U.S. presidents from, you know, the, uh, from the first ones on signaled their cultural affinities and their political affinities by talking about meat. I mean, literally George H.W. Bush talking about pork rinds, uh, William Henry Harrison talking about salt beef, right? These are maybe not uh, traditional ways of looking at political science, but they are really traditional ways of looking at sociology. And so, you know, my degree may be in something that I don't get to do a ton at work, um, but it it did really train me to think sort of analytically. And so I think, you know, you may end up in one degree, do one degree and end up somewhere else, but ultimately, um, you know, the stuff that you love best in that degree that you did get, I think you're going to end up doing uh, and in, in the, you know, in your career, um, even if it's just a little bit off that subject. Yeah. So is it safe to say, like, your, your experience in political science um, has helped you become a better strategist? Yes. Oh, totally. In fact, the best political science people are amazing uh, market research people as well. Um, mm-hmm. The guy who coined the term death tax, you know, we used to call it the estate tax and now we call it the death tax uh, because this guy, uh, Frank Luntz, basically rebranded it as something that sounded awful. And that guy is like also a god of market research. So um, there is often, you know, maybe not, I don't necessarily agree with his politics, but uh, that, that whole idea of selling policy and selling uh, products often come together in, in similar ways. So, yeah, definitely. So a lot of listeners are at entry level uh, coming into marketing or advertising. Some of them are recently, you know, started and they're, they're in junior positions. 
And a, a lot of a lot of the questions I get at this point from people are, you know, how can I progress in my career? And so mm-hmm. with you being in the position you are, I know you started, you know, at, at lower levels within the company before uh, moving up. So I kind of want to talk about that process. And um, yeah. you, know, you went from you went from a, a mid-level to a senior and then um, to a director, you know, within a few years. So from your experience, what's the best way that um, a person can prepare for an annual review um, to kind of ensure a promotion? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's, there are two ways to, well, there are a couple of ways to get a promotion. One way to get a promotion is just go to another job, right? You can, you can do that if the industry is hiring, you know, that's, there's ways to talk about that, right? I do think though, that when you are wanting promotion within your own organization, right? That it, it kind of sucks to say this, but you, it really does have to be earned. Like you're going to be so much better off for making someone uh, feel the need to promote you because of what you've done rather than just the fact that you've sat there long enough and you've done exactly what they've, uh, they've told you to do. So I think, you know, the advice I would give someone is, is figure out how you can earn that promotion because you're going to be better off for that entire process. And I think that process means both setting goals for where you want to go next, right? It really helps to have, I think, a specific sense of what you want to do. I've definitely gotten promotions and not been quite specific enough about where I wanted that to go and then had to recalibrate later. I would have been so much better off. But I said, listen, I love X, Y, and Z, but I don't want to do W, you know? Mm -hmm. So that that sense of goals is really, really helpful. I think you got to say it in a way that makes you, you know, that (laughs) that makes you sound likable, of course. But um, yeah, I think having that sense of goals about where you want to go in the future. And I also think for the reviews, certainly, because lots of all, you know, one thing um, that I think your listeners are going to come to find is that different companies do that process in different ways, right? But one thing that I think is really useful is to not just set a goal for the future and think about what you want to do in the future, but also spend some time thinking about where you've been, right? Figure out what you have been successful at, what you have really liked, and honestly, what you struggled with. Because if you're struggling with something, first of all, acknowledging that you, uh, that you are struggling with something, figuring out how to fix it, and then telling your boss very excitedly that you fixed the problem is all a boss that is all a boss ever wants to hear. Right? You could do no harm by saying, I was screwing something up and I fixed it. That is the dream of every manager. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's both that process of understanding where you want to go and where you've been, because that's going to help you set those more realistic goals. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about like, it's not just something someone's going to hand to you and you're better off for, for, for believing that and, and thinking to yourself, like, no, I really do need to earn this. I really do need to push myself because just having been somewhere for a year and doing your job, you know, that's not, that's not going to make you, uh, that's not going to make you better at what you do. Um, so yeah, definitely worth, uh, asking yourself some of those, uh, those complex questions. Cause it's going to, it's going to work for you in the end. Yeah. So I know, before we started the, the interview, we had a little brief conversation and you told me that you recently hired a bunch of people. So, yeah. uh, with, with this next question, I'm wondering like when you're interviewing for a role, um, what are some personal and professional qualities that you look for in, in young candidates? Totally. Um, I sort of love interviewing people. I used to like sing in college and the best part of being in an acapella group was um, audition day in a sort of, well, maybe in a bit of a sick way, but this is kind of similar. No, um, shouldn't have admitted on air. I was in an acapella group. Um, yeah. I mean, listen, one of the things that I don't think anyone will ever tell you anymore is that I haven't seen a cover letter Ever. No one, I've never done an interview process where someone has handed me a cover letter. I don't, you know, that goes to maybe recruiters or the HR, but like 
the average person involved sees your resume and then stalks you on LinkedIn and possibly Twitter and Instagram, maybe even TikTok if you haven't hit it. Um, so you definitely need to come in understanding that they don't really know that much about who you are, but use that to your advantage. If a cover letter is there to sell who you are, um, recognize that you may have to do that again and sell why you're there, why you want to be there, what you're interested in in that job. Um, and you're going to honestly do your interviewer a favor because you're going to make their job easier figuring out who is this person, you know, sitting at the other end of the, the Zoom window. Um, a couple other things, like I think it's obviously important to have an understanding of what the company does. Like if you can find the CEO talking on a TED Talk, give your literally watch it for five minutes. That gives you such a leg up. I also think it's really, I love to see someone with a diverse background. I think that is really fascinating when people like it's, it's more, it, you know, if you majored in advertising and you worked in an advertising agency and your next job is in advertising, that's cool. You better be pretty darn good at advertising. Right. But it is also cool to see someone who like, you know, spent a year living abroad or, or worked, uh, you know, le- I don't know, is in a band or, and, or spent a year working at a pottery studio, right? Those are the kind of things that make your resume like a lot more interesting because you ultimately do have to spend a lot of time with these people. Um, and then the final thing I'd say is like, you know, don't be afraid to stand out. If you're listening to a cool podcast, if you just read a great book about Genghis Khan, if you learned Capoeira, like, Talk about it because that's what people are gonna are gonna remember. I mean, don't don't be too weird, um, but don't be afraid of being like uh, standing out a little bit and showing a little bit of personality because they're gonna, you know, the person interviewing you might interview twenty five people, and if you want them to remember you, have something have something cool. You know, we uh, I'll tell you, we just hired a, a new strategist, and in her uh, interview, she showed me a coffee table book on design that she was reading, like indigenous design strategies. And I was like, that is so cool. I have to start bringing props to job interviews, <laughs> the next, whatever I next do one of those. So yeah, it's about, you know, standing out, show what you're passionate about, but obviously do so in a way that's, you know, appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I've discovered about this industry is it's, it's really inclusive. And when I say that, I mean, you don't really know how complex this industry is until you you get a foot in the door and you're working at one of these companies mm. and you see all the different levels and um, different types of you know departments within within marketing. You know, are there any common themes that you've noticed with with entry level talent coming in and like you know are, like are there any common mistakes that they that they make or something that you you notice frequently? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think there are like the they're like the sort of human level ones. And then there are the ones that are maybe more like industry specific. Um, and the human level one is just like, I haven't seen this too much, but you know, especially for, for, um, for, for young talent, like there's a mistake sometimes around entitlement. And I don't mean this, I, it's, it's rare to come across it, but like, you know, you got to remember that in, in the professional world, like uh, you know, what rolls downhill. Right? So sometimes you may end up having to do something that kind of frankly sucks, right? Um, because you're the lowest person on the totem pole. Now, there is a difference between doing something that makes you uncomfortable and doing something that's lame. And part of your journey, I think, is, as a human and a worker is recognizing what the difference is between what makes you, if something makes you uncomfortable to get the heck out, you know? But I feel like that's sometimes a mistake where it's like, no, sometimes you're going to have to do the real grunt work if you're really low down. But um, find a way to make it valuable, right? And if you're in the right job, you won't even mind the grunt work that, that much. Sometimes I miss doing the grunt work, right? Um, I think another issue that sometimes uh, people have is 
like assuming that there is a right amount of time to be in a position or be in a job, you know, the idea that it's like, well, I have to do this year and then I'll do a year and then I'll do two years. And like, no, that is not necessarily right. Sometimes you are at a job for six months and you get everything you need out of that job and it's okay to go. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do that too much, but that's, that's like a classic mistake that I see sometimes where people and, and less in advertising and more just in life. I've, I've done this myself where I'm like, Oh, I have to be there for a year. It's like, no, you don't have to be there for, <laughs> for a year. That's not, there's no rule about this. I think in advertising, um, you know, some of the most, I mean, it, it's funny because if you think about advertising itself, like creative directors often start in weird different places, right? Sometimes they're copy people. Sometimes they're uh, directors. Sometimes they're even like project managers who just have a really great sense of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's cool to watch people evolve. And so I think in certainly in creative fields, but also in, if you're working in marketing, you know, even if you're working in like uh, in something that's a little more straightforward or a little more analytical, like media sales, um, having a sense that you can move out of your particular role and into something else that might be related, but different is actually good, right? It's like, you know, you want to be careful how you do it, but I don't think you should just assume that because you started in client services means that you need to be in client services for the rest of your life. If project management is actually what looks a lot more fun to you, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And you just need to, again, it comes down to that sort of sense of recognizing like, what your next step is, what you've been doing well and giving yourself the chance to say like, "Mm, I actually do want to try something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I totally can relate just from what my career has been thus far. Like I came in with that thing of like, Oh, I have to be there for a year. And it ended up, you know, I ended up getting a promotion much less than what I had anticipated. Yeah. Um, You know, so that kind of threw me off and it's kind of shaped my, my vision on my career. And, and my planning on just like, you know, not, not setting those type of goals, but just working and, and um, being open to the possibilities, you know? Yeah. The yeah. only thing I'd say be careful of is I know someone who just like hops between roles every six months. Right. Uh-huh. And she gets a $15,000 raise every time she does that, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, moves to a nicer apartment once a year. Right. But um, I don't know. I don't think you get that much out of, out of doing that. <laughs> so you got to yeah. be mindful about that timing too, that you, you can go, you can lean too much into it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so what would you say is your favorite part of what you do? Yeah. Um, well, I'm very lucky in that I really like my job, which is cool. I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's a good position to be in. I, the best part of my job is definitely our daily culture briefing, which is, I, I mentioned it in the beginning of our conversation. So that's our uh, thrice weekly web show that airs uh, at noon on our LinkedIn page, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Gotta get the plug in there. And basically it's this sort of, tra- it started as this tradition at Sparks and Honey as this like joint work session. But they started talking about the news and they started inviting clients. And now it's really like our means of thought leadership. So we come together to discuss either a vertical topic. So we talked, you know, this week we talked about uh, heat waves and climate adaptation. We'll talk about what's next for streaming services, what's going on in American like street fashion. Uh, We'll also talk about like coronavirus and trust in governments. We talk about a lot of different stuff. We'll do interviews with these fascinating people. I mean, really CEOs astronauts, uh, you know, we're uh, people who are just absolutely fascinating. We do uh, partner work, uh, especially in the DEI vertical. So diversity and equity inclusion, which is something we care really, really deeply about. But yeah, I, I lead that. It's my job to make sure that we are having stimulating conversations, that we are getting something out of it, that it's our both our chance to show 
how you know smart and savvy everybody in the organization is, but also to tr- literally track culture as it changes and be smarter in talking about it because so much of what we are paid to do is to come into companies uh, and, and talk about things that where we may not be experts, but where we are experts in making the connections between the subject and broader things happening in culture. So we were talking uh, the other day about carbon sequestration. Um, you know, that's a big, crazy topic. That's the kind of thing you might talk about with an Exxon, you know, with an Exxon or a Chevron or, or whatever, right? Um, but, you know, we talked about how that relates to, say, uh, eating more seafood because <laughs> oysters are great at carbon sequestration. Planting a garden, is that an opportunity for Lowe's to, or Home Depot to get like more interesting marketing? Just as we are also talking about the futuristic, uh, you know, carbon sequestration uh, capture plants that they're going to build in Oman in the Arabian desert. So I love that part of my job. It is a great chance to perform. Like, as you may have guessed, I... I enjoy public speaking. I used to be a tour guide. Um, it is super valuable for me. And it's also, I think, super valuable for the people who tune in. We have some super fans, but um, we'd love more people even to, to watch it because it's just, it, it's, it's, it's so important to our culture and so important to kind of what we are tasked with doing, which is, I think, making ourselves and those around us and those in our orbit smarter and more, you know, culturally relevant. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I can co-sign that it's, um, the daily cultural briefing is definitely something that I feel like there's there, there's something in there for everyone. Um, and yeah. I, I wouldn't I would encourage you to listen and just, you know, expand your knowledge on certain topics. Um, totally. Ben does a great job of moderating and it's it's, it's really dope. Um, so on the reverse of that question, what would you say is the most challenging part of your job? Oh, man. Um, I think the most challenging part of our job is the kind of thing that goes across the entire you know, advertising and marketing industry and really any professional services. My lawyer friends and my architect friends feel the exact same way. I love clients. They are so smart. They give us money. They are <laughs> some of them I have genuinely great friendships with and I, I love getting on the phone with them. But ultimately you're moving on someone else's time frame. You know, um, that's why people often go in house because things get a little bit calmer when you do that. Um, you just have to be really passionate about the subject. So it's not that it's tough. It's that, um, you are, yeah, you are, you are running to catch the something again to again someone else's time frame, um, and that can be satisfying. It can be a great part of the job, but also it can be, yeah, it can it can be frustrating to 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 cram all all that. And we have a pretty good work culture about not working ourselves to death, um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't moments where I'm like, why couldn't we have had another week to do this? Um, if if you could go back in time and give your younger self some advice, let's say like freshman year of college. Undergraduate. Um, you know, what would you say to yourself knowing all that you know now? Um uh, so I went to college about 90 minutes north. I was a Vassar, which is like 90 minutes north of uh of New York City. Uh Um, and I had friends who did uh, internships, like you know, twice a week in the city. And I was like, I'm not gonna do that. Um if I had to go back and tell myself now, I would tell myself, go do some of those. Um, and you know, not everyone is 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 lucky enough to go to college year where, you know, all of effort where there is a huge amount of advertising, but honestly, every major Metro in the U S has at least a couple cool firms who are doing things like branding or who are doing marketing PR firms. And, you know, I mean, it's, you're, you're not necessarily doing it for the money, although some of them do pay. And I think that's great. And they should all pay, but um, yeah, it's like a cool, like in practicum that I did in graduate school that I really appreciated that I should have done in college. And I also go back to that. I will add one other thing. I will go back to that idea that um, don't be in, 
don't be in a position for a while because you think you have to be in it. I, after graduate school, worked in a, in a company that I was, that was neither right for me nor was I right for them. And I told myself I could just tough it out. Uh, and it was just not, it wasn't good for anybody. So, you know, don't be afraid to occasionally pull the uh, ejector button, but, you know, the, <laughs> once or twice, don't do it too much. And any advice for uh, someone who's currently a, a, you know, an entry level strategy person or striving to get our, you know, trying to get into a strategy role? Um, yeah. Any, any advice for someone who's looking to kind of have a similar career as yours? Dude, uh, well, it's funny because I, you know, I'm going to make a shameless plug here. Obviously, watch Daily Culture Briefing. You will learn how strategists think. Um, but I think this is, listen, this is a question I've been thinking about a lot lately, in part because I, as I, you mentioned, we've done a bunch of hiring. I've done a bunch of interviews. And, you know, we're having this conversation in 2021. And me as a white male, it's just, this is a question that looks different than someone who comes from a marginalized community, right? And um, as much as I love the ad world and as much as it is changing, it is a space that is off where, <laughs> where the people making the decisions don't always look like the people who are doing the work, if you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there is something that everybody can take away from that that is universally applicable to everybody. And this is true in the ad world. This is true really in any company that you, they... <laughs> They're looking to hire you as an investment, right? You can show up and you can be totally qualified and you can be a nice person and you can be all appropriately dressed and all that stuff. But ultimately, a company is making an investment in you. That's what the salary is. That's the investment, right? And so you are there not only to prove that you are smart and cogent and maybe fun to hang out with, but also and responsible, but also that you can, the money they provide you will come back to them as something, as a benefit. And I, I think coming in with that attitude can be really, really important, especially, and again, this is something I haven't experienced, but it is something that I see out in the world, especially in 2021, especially, and, and Justin, you know this because we had this whole conversation about industries trying to get better about being more representative, being from, you know, looking like no one else in the room, you need to see that as an asset because it means that you come in with a level of perspective and a level of understanding and honestly, a level of training that uh, people, you can do all the re market research studies in the world, you won't necessarily come across. And so I think we have to be real about the fact that people are going to face different paths in their uh, entry into the ad world based on their, you know, their, their biography and their biology and, and, and our imagined cultural biologies as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the best thing you can do is, is come in there and remind people why you are valuable. And if you are at a good company, if you are at a company that is that you are going to want to work at, regardless of what your background is, they're going to see that specific person, that, that, that specific sense of the world as something really valuable. Um, and, you know, we're doing, it's funny, we're doing more DEI work, as I was saying at Sparks and Honey, and so much of it comes down to this idea that it's like, you know, um, perspective is everything in a diversifying world. If you look at the census data, you will see that um, things that might have been a liability in the past really in a better world should be seen as, uh, and I think increasingly are, um, are seen as a benefit and a bonus. And so figure out what your asset is. It doesn't matter your background, figure out what makes you that investment and uh, you'll do well. Uh, so good. So good. I'm taking notes myself. I love that. <laughs> Um, that was a little, yeah, a little pep <laughs> talk to everybody. And also, uh, let's be real, a pep talk to people like me too, who sometimes need to be smacked upside the head and be like, don't be an idiot. Don't just hire someone because they remind you of yourself at their age. Like hire someone because they are awesome. Not because that, you know, they, they fit some mold that you think you have to hire for.
Yeah, 100%, 100%. So for the listeners that might wish to get in touch with you after this um, or in the future, um, how can they do that? Yeah, so a couple of ways. You can uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. I swear I'll, <laughs> I'll message back. I love to talk to people. Um, you can, as I said, check out the Daily Culture Briefing because I think you guys will like it. When we are, when, whenever that is, when we are back in the studio, I, you know, hit me up and uh, we'd love to even have you into Sparks and Honey's office. Sparks and Honey is always looking for new uh, strategy talent. So it doesn't hurt to come in and say hello. I'll, you know, I'll get you an espresso or something. Um, so yeah, I would love to be in touch with people. And by the way, that's an invitation to you too, Justin, next time you're on the East coast, you're welcome to come hang out with us okay. too. I feel like I owe you. Um, but yeah, feel free to reach out and, um, thanks again for, for, for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. No, good luck with everything. Always good to catch up and uh, I'll be in touch. Totally. All right. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for having me. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning into this episode. If you want to keep up with us outside of these podcasts, make sure you follow us on Instagram. That's at Adcademics, A-D-C-A-D-E-M-I-C-S. You can also email adcademicspodcast at gmail.com for any and all inquiries. Thank you. Class dismissed.